Old John Brown's body lies molding in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured out to save And though he lost his life in his struggle to free the slaves His truth is marching on John Brown's body lies molding in the grave John Brown's body lies molding in the grave John Brown's body lies molding in the grave But his truth still marches on John Brown was a hero Undaunted, true, and brave Kansas knew his valor When he fought her rights to save And now though the grass Grows green above his grave His truth still marches on John Brown's body lies molding in the grave John Brown's body lies molding in the grave John Brown's body lies molding in the grave But it's true still marches on He captured Harper's Ferry with his 19 men so few And he frightened over Jenny till she trembled through and through They hung him for a traitor Themselves a traitorous crew But it's true still marches on He's gone to be a soldier In the army of the Lord He's gone to be a soldier In the army of the Lord He's gone to be a soldier In the army of the Lord And his truth still marches on John Brown was John the Baptist, for the Christ we are to see. Christ of whom the bondsman shall the liberator be. And soon throughout the sunny south, the slaves were all set free. And his truth went marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah, his truth went marching on. The conflict that he heralded, he looks down from heaven to view on the army of the Union with its flag red, white, and blue. And heaven shall ring with anthems or the deeds they mean to do, for his truth still marches on. Glory, 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 hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah His truth still marches on O soldiers of freedom, then strike while strike you may The death blow of oppression for a better time and way For the dawn of old John Brown has brightened us today And his truth is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah His truth still marches on He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord He's gone to be a soldier In the army of the Lord He's gone to be a soldier In the army of the Lord And-
and his truth still marches on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth still marches on. Words to inspire, to stir the blood, and to prod our bodies to action. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. It's Here We Stand, February the 5th. John Brown and the attack on Harper's Ferry that sparked the American Civil War in the next year, it showed the power of a few people acting with courage and will. The dropping of a match on the gunpowder all around us can, at the right moment in time and history, spark an amazing change and revolution. And that's been our message and our experience for many years now. We've repeated that history 25 years ago this week, as we've been talking about, began our movement in February 1998, which literally 15 years almost to the day culminated in the forcing out of office of so-called Pope Benedict Joseph Ratzinger and created a worldwide revolution, really, of a common law sovereignty movement, which we're seeing play out all over. And this show was one aspect of that, the show of the resistance and the republic in Canada, the movement to establish the sovereign republic of Canada that is being established across the former dominion of Canada, so-called. You can follow that work, Republic of Canada, K-A-N-A-T-A, republicofcanada.org, murderbydecree.com. And this, of course, is our program every week where we bring that message forward, but also actively organize people to achieve that. Now, this is another show, if you've been following the shows, you know that we're preparing this month for a, a series of actions based on the fact that 25 years ago, our movement sparked everything we've been talking about and, and been showing for the last number of shows, especially. And these dates, February 9th, 10th, and 11th this week, uh, February 9th, the first public forum ever held on the residential school genocide in Vancouver, sparked protests that month for the first time that we helped lead at the churches in downtown Vancouver with that have the blood of 60,000 children on their hand. 67,000 children died in these death camps. They call residential schools. Not one person has ever been brought to trial for that, except in our common law courts. February the 11th, the 10th anniversary of our forcing out of power of Pope Benedict. And also that same year, 25 years ago, in June, the first tribunal ever held into the residential school death camps. All of that sparked by that movement. I guess you could call this a month of Sundays because groups all over Canada and around the world will be holding direct actions at these genocidal churches, not simply because of the crimes of the past, because the, but the ongoing crimes of genocide. These churches are still doing the child trafficking. They are, like in the case of the Catholic Church, they are the financial arm of the Chinese takeover, the financial underwriters of Chinese expansion in North America. And the very fact that they got away with this crime prompted our republic very soon after it was formed in January 2015 to pass a series of laws in conjunction with our indigenous allies, like of the Chilcotin, the Anishinaabek, and the Squamish West Coast nations who are treated and allied with our republic now. We passed a law banishing them from our territories. It's the law in Canada passed in our assemblies that these churches do not have the right to operate. We have the right to legally seize the property and assets of the Catholic, the Anglican, the United Churches that killed so many of our people and are continuing the crime. 
So like the other laws passed by our republic, the law banning COVID measures in September 20, uh, 2020, the laws of returning tax money to our communities and standing down the local crown officials, these things are all happening at the grassroots level across Canada. And like I say, you can follow that work, republicofcanada.org, and write to us, republicofcanada at protonmail.com. Now, today, of course, we're going to continue this uh, series of teachings to prepare people for the February action. And uh, if you go to murderbydecree.com to ITCCS updates, you'll notice uh, on the January 31st posting and also the um, uh, posting from August the... 19th, the banishment order, and also the recent news of the events that are going to be happening over February and how you can take part in it. Uh, so just go to those sites, and uh, you'll have all that basic information. But today on the show, we want to uh, go into some of the nuts and bolts of what we did over those 25 years, and especially in this foundational year of 1998, two things we're going to look at. That first forum, what brought it about, the impact it had, and how it led to the tribunal, and the even greater impact that tribunal had in forcing out this this crime, very relevant today. Some of the lessons that we learned, and um, you know, it, it, also this week I should mention um, it's my 67th birthday on Friday, February 10th. Happy birthday, Kev! I've been getting them already, and uh, one of the things people have been saying is, well, tell us about some of the formative influences, Kev, that brought you to this. And I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about that today too. Uh, and one of the guys who had a real profound influence on me was, his name was Joe Hensby, and you probably know about him because I talk about him a lot in my books and on the show. And Joe, when I first met him, was exactly the age I am now. He was 67, and I was 19. We, used, uh, we met in the Lotus Pub in downtown Vancouver. Uh, I worked in the post office. He was a blacklisted labor organizer from the Longshore he had been involved in so many unwinnable battles over the years. He had been in the Spanish Civil War against it, uh, Franco and fascism. He'd been wounded there. He'd been stabbed and beaten to a pulp for union organizing, thrown in jails more times than you can recall. But he didn't wear any of that uh, battered 67 years with any kind of regret or weariness. He accepted all of the sorrows of his life as a kind of triumph and as the inevitable consequence of being who he was, which was an unrepentant revolutionary, always out there for the people. Well, I remember one night at, uh, after uh, we, we had met up for a beer, we were sitting in the Lotus Pub, and I remember asking him, my young 19-year-old self said, Joe, how did you survive all those years? You know, the kind of question folks ask me these days, like, how have you done it for so many years, Kev? And, uh, you know, Joe kind of laconically said, well, you know, I just didn't let the bastards grind me down. But I said, no, come on, Joe, there was more going on than that. You've had two failed marriages. You're blacklisted and broke. You got no friends or family. And he finally said, well, you know, I'm a goddamn radical. It comes with the territory. And he said, if I, if I had to do it again, I wouldn't change a thing. Because if you've got principles, you do them. If you don't got them, you don't do them. And finally, he said something. There was two great quotes I love from Joe Hensby that has stuck with me down the decades. And one is, talk and don't do shit, which is one of my mottos. But it's also, um, Joe said, you know, when I asked him to explain how he had survived all these, he said, look, either you want into their stupid system or you want out of it. You make your choice and everything else follows. And, you know, that struck me because if we always want into the system, we're always convincing ourselves that 
we have to, you know, get what we can for ourselves and then settle back in. Uh, often the people who want to stay in the system, when we, we bring out the truth of these crimes and offer their involvement in our, in our campaigns and everything, they, they, the common statement you hear from somebody who wants to stay in the system is, well, surely there's good people in the system and in the churches, aren't there? Aren't there people we can appeal to? Almost like, please don't let me break from this. I don't know what lies ahead. We don't know what we're building here. What kind of new society? But the people who can't tolerate this sick, murderous system, they'll be the ones who always say, what do we have to do to stop these crimes once and for all? I don't care. I've got nothing left in my life anyway. I want to go to the wall and stop these things. And those are the kinds of people who led these first protests, who led the church occupations, people like William Coombs, homeless Native people who had nothing to lose. And it was so interesting, all the times we used to occupy those churches and force this change, it was always those folks out on the line with us. They weren't afraid of the cops because every day they got beaten up by cops. They had nothing to lose, and they were there. And you don't have to be Native and poor and homeless to be in that state of mind. You go through a lot of loss in your life and end up there and realize, look, we're all going to die anyway. The question is, how are we going to die? You know, trying to eke out a few more years of semi-slave existence in, in the system, or throwing it all aside and saying, look, like Thomas Paine said in the American Revolution, if there is to be conflict, let it happen now in my time so that my children may know peace. And that's, you know, really been my philosophy. I have everything taken from me, including my kids, including my family and livelihood. I've been on a blacklist. And, uh, look, I'm still here because there's a part of us they can never take from us. And you only find that out often when your back is to the wall. So that's part of what keeps us going. Now, a few lessons. I want to get into that more today, uh, tonight, wherever you are, whatever time zone you're in all over the world. Um, and there are a few lessons that I want to bring out about what we learned over the years, and especially in that formative year in 1998, where we did the first public forum, where we brought out these crimes, we started picketing the churches, and that summer we did the first tribunal into the residential school massacres. And by the way, if you want to look at the extent of those atrocities and massacres, just go to murderbydecree.com. The PDF of all of our research is online there for you to read. Also a three-DVD set of all of the crimes that we documented and gave to the International Common Law Court of Justice that forced Pope Benedict out of office. It's all online there. Next time people want to say, where's the proof? Well, folks, it's been out there for many years. It's not a matter of lack of proof. It's a matter that people don't want to look at it. And they don't want to acknowledge that their their little comfy world can produce these crimes and that they're, they're paying for it with their taxes. So it's all there, and I urge you to use that as an educational tool. But here's some of the le- lessons we learned taking on these bigger adversaries of church and state and big money. When you're attacked, you redeploy, and you come at them from a different, unexpected direction. And when I was fired and blacklisted over two years, from 1995 to 97, by the United Church for bringing out these crimes in Port Alberni, and they even went to my wife and paid for her divorce if she'd leave me. You know, the kind of classic thing, that way you treat whistleblowers. My response is, not to complain a lot about what was happening to me. I realized they were doing these crimes, you know, spending a quarter of a million dollars, throwing one minister out of the United Church. That was done at a public show trial, my public defrocking. They'd never done it before to a minister in United Church history. Obviously, to me and to a lot of people, it was clear that they were doing that to cover up their own crimes of genocide in these rest schools that we began to document and bring out 
after I let survivors speak from my pulpit in Port Alberni. And we realized, look, the bigger target here is not what happened to poor Kev, it's the crime. And so we began to do that. Like Sun Tzu said in The Art of War, when attacked, you redeploy in a counterattack from a direction they don't expect. So within two years, we were picketing the churches. We were addressing the bigger crime of the genocide that prompted my firing and the cover-up and the land theft that was ongoing. Churches still today grabbing native land and killing off native people at the behest of big money and big corporate interests. It's never stopped. And so, first lesson, you give space when you're attacked, redeploy, and come at them from an angle you don't expect. Second lesson, you always move the enemy. Don't be moved by them. Don't let them set the train to battle. For example, we would make an initiative, and we held our tribunal, and in response, they set up the bogus Aboriginal Healing Fund, which was really a way to pay off survivors. And they offered survivors a bit of money, and in return, they were legally gagged and couldn't sue the churches or government. That was a direct response to our tribunal in 1998. We started church occupations and an international court action in 2008 that hit all the major newspapers in Canada. Very soon after that, they announced their bogus Truth and Reconciliation Commission, run by the churches and government themselves, like the serial killer appoints the judge and jury in their own trial. They investigate themselves. And that farce was in direct response to the fact that we were hitting them where they didn't expect, occupying the churches, going international. And we did all that. Third lesson, we were always public, we were always loud, we were always disruptive of the things they loved. That is, church collection plates, public image. We'd go into the churches and seize them nonviolently. And the very fact of doing that sent them into a panic. They didn't expect that. Never do what they expect. You don't hold a protest. They're ready for that. They want you to do that. You hit them with an unexpected action. And very importantly, never stop. Never stop what you're doing. Don't give them a pause. Always change your tactics and actions because they adapt very quickly. And you've got to outthink them all the time. That's what a smaller group does in a guerrilla war. You outthink your adversary. Another lesson, don't let the enemy outmaneuver you by co-opting the issue or the language. And that happened very, not quickly, but within a few years of what we're doing, they immediately began to use the language that we were. You notice that Justin Trudeau and even Jorge Bergoglio, a.k.a. Pope Francis, bloody Pope Francis from Argentina, they're even using the word genocide now when we're the only ones ever using it in relation to the residential school death camps. And that shows that if you're small, even if you are just a few people, there are only two dozen of us doing these actions. You're persistent. The enemy has to come around to your language, but then they try to co-op the language or issue all the time. They set up their Aboriginal healing fund, their hush money. They set up their bogus investigation of themselves. All the time they co-opt it. So you can't let them outmaneuver you that way. Finally, and this is the most important thing, you have to define and control the narrative. That's basic. You say what the issue is. It's not about abused children, and that's the term they used all along. They still use that term, abuse. What the hell does abuse mean? It can mean, hey, you've abused our relationship. You know, it can be harsh language. That's what they say instead of torture and murder and sterilizations and all the other crimes that go on and went on in these death camps. You've got to use your own language. I remember in the talking circles where we brought together the first survivors, and that's another important point. You can't start a campaign without research and hard evidence. We accumulated that over months and year, a couple of years before we began our campaign. We spoke knowledgeably. 
Not like now when people do campaigns based on hearsay and what they saw on the Internet, not hard evidence that stands up in a court of law. No, we documented that on our healing circles. And um, in the healing circles and talking circles, people would say, uh, you know, they would use the language of the system, like healing. Nobody heals from this stuff. That's the, the lawyer language to get money out of people, right? Um, they would use their own, you know, they, I would encourage them to start using their own language, like what? People would start saying, well, they tortured me, not abused me. They tortured me. You know, I saw my, chil- my friends killed, you know, that kind of thing. Use your own language. Take back the language, because language is power. And, and, and matter of fact, in about 10 minutes, we're going to hear a, no, actually five minutes to the break. We're going to hear a uh, wonderful reflection on that by George Carlin, the uh, comedian, political comedian, who's still with us, even though he isn't physically. And uh, it's called Euphemisms, how control of language is a way to control people's minds. So uh, that's very important. Control the narrative all the time and control the language. Now, we also had an advantage in that campaign. Our strengths were we had a lot of evidence and a lot of eyewitnesses, and we put them front and center all the time. Also, the, our adversary, the churches, were guilty, and they all knew it. They were in denial, and that made them easy to outflank. They were very paranoid. And like, Here's an example. They knew they, they did the crime, and so as soon as we showed up with their picket signs, they went ballistic. They, they hired security guards at all the churches to frisk their own people when they came into church on Sunday. It's like Sun Tzu says, you provoke the enemy to destroy themselves. You provoke them into totally unreasonable actions because of their level of fear. You exploit that fear. And so when your enemy is guilty and they know it, you can easily provoke them to do those kind of silly things. We did that all the time. Uh, We urge people not to put money in collection plates like we still do, saying you can't fund these murderous corporations under the law. Also, we had a lot of initial media interest. The corporate media hadn't been co-opted and controlled on this issue of genocide at that point. And so they always covered, they ate up what we did. I remember if you look at murderbydecree.com, you'll see the early articles from like the Vancouver Sun from 1997, saying former minister says church murdered children. I mean, you never see that now, but uh, it's being totally whitewashed, the whole issue. But now, back then, every time I got, I got evidence, like the documents showing that the churches were the actual legal guardians of the children in these death camps, that piece of evidence, when I published it, immediately sparked the first lawsuits against the churches who ran these death camps, because they couldn't weasel out of the fact that they were the legal guardians of these children. Releasing that one document to the media provoked an incredible counter-reaction, and that's because we had the media interest. When the media isn't on your side, you be the media yourself. You broadcast loudly, like we're doing on this show right now, and we keep the issue alive by staging public actions that are what they say, they call it sexy actions, things that are like a news hook, something really dramatic, a human story, uh, somebody who witnessed a murder, put them front and center. We did that all the time. Also, recognize one of our strengths was that we recognized we were dealing with a systemic crime. It was global. It still is. And so we had a huge base of people to, to appeal to. Anyone ever tortured and raped in a church? Um, and just like now with the COVID tyranny, we can appeal to everyone forced to take the shot. So the system continually gives us those weapons to use. By attacking all of us, they in the sh- uh, scattergun approach they use now, go after everyone, that's great. We want people to be go- uh, attacked in a big way because that breeds dissent and future rebels. 
So we can use those attacks all the time to our advantage. Start thinking like Art of War, Sun Tzu. Uh, finally, like I said before, we define and control the narrative all the time. We control the language, and that's essential. Now, we're going to hear that now. I'm going to take a short break. We're going to hear that from our good friend, George Carlin. We'll be back with more after this. It's worse with every generation. For some reason, it just keeps getting worse. I'll give you an example of that. There's a condition in combat. Most people know about it. It's when a fighting person's nervous system has been stressed to its absolute peak and maximum, can't take any more input. The nervous system has either snapped or is about to snap. In the First World War, that condition was called shell shock. Simple, honest, direct language. Two syllables. Shell shock. Almost sounds like the guns themselves. That was 70 years ago. Then a whole generation went by, and the Second World War came along, and we, the very same combat condition was called battle fatigue. Four syllables now. Takes a little longer to say. Doesn't seem to hurt as much. Fatigue is a nicer word than shock. Shell shock. Battle fatigue. <laughs> then we had the war in Korea, 1950. Madison Avenue was riding high by that time. And the very same combat condition was called operational exhaustion. <laughs> hey, we're up to eight syllables now. And the humanity has been squeezed completely out of the phrase. It's totally sterile now. Operational exhaustion. Sounds like something that might happen to your car. <laughs> then, of course, came the war in Vietnam, which has only been over for about 16 or 17 years. And thanks to the lies and deceit surrounding that war, I guess it's no surprise that the very same condition was called post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> Still eight syllables, but we've added a hyphen. And the pain is completely buried under jargon. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll bet you if we'd have still been calling it shell shock, some of those Vietnam veterans might have gotten the attention they needed at the time. I'll bet you that. But it didn't happen. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons is because we were using that soft language, that language that takes the life out of life. And it is a function of time. It does keep getting worse. I'll give you another example. Sometime during my life, sometime during my life, toilet paper became bathroom tissue. I wasn't notified of this. No one asked me if I agreed with it. It just happened. Toilet paper became bathroom tissue. Sneakers became running shoes. False teeth became dental appliances. Medicine became medication. Information became directory assistance. The dump became the landfill. Car crashes became automobile accidents. Partly cloudy became partly sunny. Motels became motor lodges. House trailers became mobile homes. Used cars became previously owned transportation. <laughs> room service became guest room dining. And constipation became occasional irregularity. <laughs> when I was a little kid, if I got sick, they wanted me to go to the hospital and see the doctor. Now they want me to go to a health maintenance organization. 
or a wellness center to consult a health care delivery professional. Poor people used to live in slums. Now the economically disadvantaged occupy substandard housing in the inner cities. And they're broke. They're broke. They don't have a negative cash flow position. They're fucking broke. Because a lot of them were fired. You know, fired, management wanted to curtail redundancies in the human resources area. So many people are no longer viable members of the workforce. Smug, greedy, well-fed white people have invented a language to conceal their sins. It's as simple as that. The CIA doesn't kill anybody anymore. They neutralize people. Or they depopulate the area. The government doesn't lie and engages in disinformation. The Pentagon actually measures nuclear radiation in something they call sunshine units. Israeli murderers are called commandos. Arab commandos are called terrorists. Contra killers are called freedom fighters. Well, if crime fighters fight crime and firefighters fight fire, what do freedom fighters fight? They never mention that part of it to us, do they? Never mention that part of it. And some of this stuff is just silly. We know, we all know that. Like on the airlines, they say they want to pre-board. Well, what the hell is pre-board? What does that mean? To get on before you get on? <laughs> they say they're going to pre-board those passengers in need of special assistance. Cripples! <laughs> Simple, honest, direct language. There's no shame attached to the word cripple that I can find in any dictionary. No shame attached to it. In fact, it's a word used in Bible translations. Jesus healed the cripples. Doesn't take seven words to describe that condition. But we don't have any cripples in this country anymore. We have the physically challenged. Is that a grotesque enough evasion for you? How about differently abled? I've heard them call that differently abled. You can't even call these people handicapped anymore. They'll say, we're not handicapped, we're handicapable. <laughs> these poor people have been bullshitted by the system into believing that if you change the name of the condition, somehow you'll change the condition. Well, hey, cousin, <laughs> doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. We have no more deaf people in this country, hearing impaired. No one's blind anymore, partially sighted or visually impaired. We have no more stupid people. Everybody has a learning disorder. <laughs> or he's minimally exceptional. How would you like to be told that about your child? He's minimally exceptional. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> Psychologists actually have started calling ugly people those with severe appearance deficits. It's getting so bad that any day now I expect to hear a rape victim referred to as an unwilling sperm recipient. And we have no more old people in this country. No more old people. We shipped them all away and we brought in these senior citizens. Isn't that a typically American 20th century phrase? Bloodless lifeless no pulse in one of them a senior citizen 
But I've accepted that one. I've come to terms with it. I know it's here to stay. We'll never get rid of it. That's what they're going to be called. So I'll relax on that. But the one I do resist, the one I keep resisting, is when they look at an old guy and they'll say, Look at him, Dan. He's 90 years young. <laughs> Imagine the fear of aging that reveals. To not even be able to use the word old to describe someone. To have to use an antonym. And fear of aging is natural, it's universal, isn't it? We all have that. No one wants to get old, no one wants to die, but we do. So we bullshit ourselves. <laughs> I started bullshitting myself when I got to my 40s. As soon as I was in my 40s, I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, Well, I, I guess I'm getting older. <laughs> older sounds a little better than old, doesn't it? Sounds like it might even last a little longer. Bullshit, I'm getting old. And it's okay, because thanks to our fear of death in this country, I won't have to die. I'll pass away. <laughs> or I'll expire like a magazine subscription. If it happens in the hospital, they'll call it a terminal episode. The insurance company will refer to it as negative patient care outcome. And if it's the result of malpractice, they'll say it was a therapeutic misadventure. I'm telling you, some of this language makes me want to vomit. Well, maybe not vomit. Makes me want to engage in an involuntary personal protein spill. And we're back. Yeah, perfect, beautiful, truthful. You know, like, it's such a big issue because whenever you get people together, they you realize and they start talking about what they've been through or what we're facing. They're never using their own words. They're always using somebody else's words, some other language they read from somewhere. And you see a hesitation. You know, I'll say, okay, but what do you really mean? Well, I said it. No, no, what do you really mean? Use your own words. And often people won't even know what I'm talking about when I say use your own words. Here's an example. Um... When this, when we first began to bring out these crimes, murder and torture and killings uh, in the death camps, and again, residential schools, they weren't residential or schools. Most of the time, children were never taught anything. They were used as slave labor, so I call them schools. Just deliberate deception. But anyway, at the start of this thing, when we began to bring it out, the government threw out two terms, healing and abuse. And they got their puppet, a guy called... Uh, Phil Fontaine, who is head of the puppet native organization called the Assembly of First Nations in Canada. These are self-appointed chiefs who get all these government perks, you know, free credit cards, all these perks to pay off themselves, to buy off, you know, they buy off the chiefs to sell out their own people and the resources, sign treaties and all of that. So they got their puppet, Phil Fontaine, to stand up at a, in Parliament and say, I was abused in a residential school. That was in 1990. That kicked off the whole kind of uh, exposure, not exposure, but coverage, the corporate media coverage of the issue. And it was framed in terms of abuse, right? Well, then these other terms, apology and reconciliation, this came out in response to everything we're doing about two years after we exposed everything at this first tribunal, which, by the way, in June 1998, 25 years ago this summer, we brought out all these crimes for the first time, including sterilization programs, children being medically experimented on by Pfizer and others that were used as, as they still are, drug testing guinea pigs, 
by these drug companies. Where do you think the COVID and other viruses came from? They were first tested on on native kids in these residential schools and death camps and uh, the Indian hospitals. Uh, We brought all that out, and in direct response, they announced the Aboriginal Healing Fund, which was money for people who would not sue and be legally gagged. And they brought out these two words, apology and reconciliation. You hear that everywhere now, reconciliation. Well, let's look what the meaning of the word two words are, because this is a classical example of how people's minds are controlled, um, you know, through language. Reconciliation does not mean two people bearing the hatchet and, and getting along, which is the kind of the popular vernacular notion of, of you know, what it is. Reconcilia is... From the Latin, it was an ancient practice in Rome. If you were a tribal chief in the Roman Empire and you were rebelled, and once you were defeated by the Roman legions, you were brought in chains to Rome, to the Forum, and you were made to kneel and supplicate yourself in front of the emperor, and you were reconciled, reconciliate. You were begged for forgiveness, and then you were legally and ritually strangled to death in front of the emperor. That was called being reconciled. Now, it's kind of filtered into our language, the term, uh, like, for example, he's reconciled to his fate. Reconciliation, to be reconciled, really means to surrender. Um, and yet, here we are, they're using it all the time. And so the subtle language, subconsciously, they're saying, yeah, you may think you're being reconciled and things are fine now, but in fact, we're resubordinating you. And that's exactly what happened. You, Native people who talked about this stuff, they were given a money and a bribe, and they were, quote, reconciled, and now they're back to where they were before, oh, except they're even worse off now because they're legally gagged. The criminals have got away with the crime. They're even destroying their own mass grave sites and getting away with it because everyone is reconciled. Okay. Another word, apology. You hear that all the time, not only in Canada, but all over the world. Whenever a government or a church or a big corporation is caught in a crime, they immediately after everyone, the lawyers get on the, on the uh, did I say liars? Well, same thing, liars, lawyers. Lawyers get on the scene, and they start talking about settlements. But as part of that, they issue an apology. Now, look it up in Webster's Dictionary. Apology has nothing to do with uh, saying you're sorry. In the Webster's Dictionary, it's defined as to defend one's action or the acts of another or the words of another. So it's defending yourself. An apologetic, if you remember in literature, an apologetic is when something is written to defend a position of somebody else. So really what a politician or church leader is saying, or uh, the top criminal in Rome, Bergoglio, is saying when he apologizes, like he did last summer when he came to Canada and issued an apology. You notice they never say, I'm sorry. They just say, we issue an apology. What they're saying by that is that we didn't do anything wrong, um, and we're justified in what we're doing, and we, in effect, it's defending what they did. That's what an apology is. And yet everyone else is hearing it as, oh, good, they're sorry, now things are better. You know, it, it, it's the old double think that you get in English especially. The words have double meanings, and they're used all the time, especially in courts, to screw people around and confuse them. So that whole thing of language is very important, and that's why in our training workshops and everything, we urge people to always use your own words and say what you really mean. And it takes a while of, you know, kind of um, breaking away from this mind control language that is being foisted on us. Um, and so in the last few minutes, what I want to do is describe a little bit of 
one of the other really important events from 25 years ago, and that was our first tribunal into the residential school death camps, because that tribunal really set the tone for everything that's followed. And I'm talking about not just in terms of genocide, but the whole common law movement today that's bringing charges, people setting up their own courts and tribunals. You didn't hear about that more than 10 years ago, because when we prosecuted Pope Benedict and forced him and three cardinals out of office that year with the hard evidence of genocide, it showed people that common law courts and people establishing their own investigations and courts works. It forced one of the most powerful bozos on the planet out of office. And one of the reasons it did, by the way, is we went to the governments of Europe during uh, 2012 and 2013 after our tribunal set up this common law court. And we said, here's all the evidence that Pope Benedict is sharing um, a He's dictating to all of his bishops that if they come across evidence of child killing, child trafficking, anything, child rape, they're to cover it up and not tell anyone. That's a criminal offense. It's, in fact, a policy in the Catholic Church to do that, called crimen solicitanus. It's still in the books, making every Catholic in the world part of a criminal conspiracy to protect child rapists. So we went to these governments, and guess what? The Spanish government responded. And the ambassador to the Vatican, a guy called Eduardo de Baruga, he was a Spanish so-called ambassador to that non-existent government called the Vatican. And he uh, said to the, uh, just before Ratzinger resigned on February 11th, 2013, uh, Baruga said on behalf of the Spanish government, based on the evidence we've seen from the International Common Law Court of Justice, our court we set up, based on the evidence they showed us, the Pope could face arrest if it comes to Spain, because he's ordering people in our country to disobey the laws of Spain, like they do all over the world, and say, obey a papal dictate which says cover up child rape and ignore the child protection laws of your own country. That was communicated to the Secretary of State, Tarsicio Bertone, on February 6th. Five days later, Ratzinger steps down, as does uh, Bertone, and they bring in the new guy, who's uh, Bergoglio, Pope Francis, whose main job is to conceal all of this stuff. And so it shows you the power of what we do, the power of the common law courts, and that was all started by the what was called the Iram Tribunal. Now that was June 12th to 14th, 1998. In a nutshell, what happened is Harriet Nahani and I, who was uh, the first witness to come forward about a killing at the Old Bernie uh, death camp, just down the road from where I had worked in the church. I had given a platform to people to speak from my pulpit, which is one of the reasons I got tossed out. And um, Harriet and I invited in a, a group, a, a non-governmental organization at the UN called IRAM, International Human Rights Association of American Minorities, a guy called Rudy James. Well, IRAM's still around, although they were gotten to after, and they were um, pressured to withdraw uh, and rewrite their history that they had had anything to do with us. But at the time, Iram sponsored a tribunal, June 12th to 14th, 1998. We held it at the Maritime Labor Center on the east side of Vancouver. And um, we lined up over 100 eyewitnesses to come and speak. Now, what was really interesting about that, we also had 10 Aboriginal judges. Uh, Rudy James from Iram, he was a Klingit native from Alaska. He brought in a guy called Yusuf Klai, who was an international lawyer, and for three days, we brought in eyewitnesses that we'd been gathering over the previous couple of years. And we, they sat there and gave their testimony. But an interesting thing happened. On the morning of the second day, a big guy called um, 
uh, Dean Wilson shoved me into a corner and put his hand around my throat. That was June 13th, 1998. And he said, Eddie John is upset about what you're doing here, and you cut this out or you'll be sorry. Well, Eddie John, Ed John, is one of the chief government uh, puppet chiefs in Canada. He's from the Karasakani area of north, uh, northern B.C. He signed away his land and resources. He's involved in making his own members of his tribal council disappear uh, because he's directly in work now with the Chinese, directly in league with them. And he didn't like the fact that we were talking about residential school crimes because when he was a kid, he had been one of the, the uh, what they call the enforcers. He, was, he spied on other Native children. He got benefits for um, doing that. And he ended up a big chief one day. So naturally, he and the other government puppet chiefs don't want this truth to come out because it implicates them. Well, Dean Wilson was working for Ed John, and he threatened me, and we went ahead anyway. But the number of people involved suddenly dropped off. Dean Wilson went around threatening people. By the second day, we hit, we were about a, only about a quarter of the survivors were still there. But they nevertheless gave conclusive evidence, backed up by a lot of the research that I've been doing. Because at the uh, University of British Columbia, where I went to get a doctoral degree <clears throat> after the church had fired me, uh, a doctoral de- degree that they also sabotaged, that's another story, but um, the... Uh, the evidence I'd found in Kerner Library at UBC showing hard evidence that half the children were dying every year, government documents, sterilization programs, children who wouldn't uh, learn English, who held on to their traditions, were given a red tag. They were sterilized, either uh, surgically or put under x-ray machines, just like at the Nazi death camps in Europe. And, you know, these sterilization programs, hard evidence, like, in the UN Convention on Genocide, preventing births, proof of genocide. All of this shared, all the Canadian media were blacked out of it. Only the Globe and Mail reported it June 20th, 1998. Uh, they reported some of these things. And in direct response, all of the judges there unanimously agreed that the genocide had been committed by the Catholic Anglican United Churches in Canada, along with the federal government, the Crown of England, the Vatican. And they recommended to Mary Robinson, who was then the UN High Commissioner on Human Rights in Geneva, they recommended to her that Canada be formally charged at the UN with genocide and an investigation be launched across the country. Well, guess what happened, boys and girls? That was shut down. Mary Robinson never replied, never acted on it. Uh, A woman called Denise Frechette, who was a Canadian civil servant and friends with Mary Robinson, shut down any investigation into that. And that's when the big counterattack started. Uh, that's when people started disappearing, evidence disappearing. They really set up for the first time the smear campaign that you'll still see on the Internet, the, you know, the hate and, and fear Kevin Annett campaign. Started then by E-Division of the RCMP under a guy called uh, Inspector Peter Montague, who well, led the campaign against me. He, that infamous quote from him that same month said, take down Annett and you take down the issue. And that's the other thing to keep in mind. Never be associated one person with an issue, because then if you delegitimate the person, there goes the issue. But fortunately, we had a lot of enough people talking about it by then that that didn't happen. But they started things like a dead deer appeared on my doorstep one day with a bullet through its head. I found bullets in the mailbox. Uh, Death threats that happened whenever my children, who had been taken from me in a court action funded by the United Church, whenever my children were with me on on every second weekend, um, they started harassing 
driving around, scaring them, trying to get them so scared they didn't want to be with dad anymore. You know, those kinds of things they aim at whistleblowers. It all started after that. And it turned out subsequently, a, a CSIS agent named Grant Wakefield came to me a number of years ago and said it was something that Prime Minister Jean Chrétien began at the time. Uh, in June 1998, directly in response to a tribunal, he authorized a covert campaign that resulted in the death of nine of our people, including William Coombs, uh, the silencing of, of people who wouldn't be bought off, including chiefs who wouldn't play along, um, a whole misinformation campaign in the academic world and in the media, spinning the whole story to make it seem like children were, weren't really killed en masse. You still see that today. Uh, they even got to the point where they're now denying that mass graves exist, even though their own TRC cover-up admitted there were mass graves. Now they're saying there weren't any. You see, you can rewrite history all the time when you have these attacks ordered from the very top. So that was the Chan Directive of June 1998 that really set the tone for all of the cover-ups, smear campaigns, misinformation that's followed. But here's the thing. We carried on anyway. And... On the basis of that, we eventually forced Pope Benedict out of office uh, this month, 10 years ago. It took 15 years, and that 15-year period is something that we're going to write our own, do our own documentary on. We're working on it as we speak. 1998 to 2013, how we brought about a revolutionary change in the world that we're still feeling the effect of. And that was really started by those simple actions by a few of us, just like John Brown, 19 guys attack Harper's Ferry, spark the Civil War. That's exactly what we did. And that's a lesson we teach people all the time. It's not about numbers. It's about being persistent year after year. And that's the trouble these days, folks, because people involved in these uh, campaigns, the freedom movement, they forget the three most basic rules. Know your situation and the issue. Not what you learn from other people, but what you've experienced yourself, based not on conjecture, but on hard evidence. Define and control the narrative. Don't let the opposition control the narrative and define it for you. And always summon the enemy and direct their responses. Now, you know, protests don't do that. Truck convoys don't do that. It's demanding something from the government, you know, which they're never going to give. It's acting like a slave does with your hand out. No, you establish your own justice like we did. You establish your own courts. We you establish our own self-governing republic, which is the logical outcome of everything we're talking about. Because morally, we can't be part of the system anymore. We have to set up, under international law, our own jurisdiction. And that's why the republic was set up in January 2015. For non-native people who don't want to be part of this bloody system anymore, we're in alliance with indigenous sovereign elders. Not the government puppet chiefs, but the traditionalists. It's an imperative morally, legally, politically, and personally in every way to separate from the corrupt genocidal regime called Canada or anywhere in the world. We're now in alliance in nine countries with people doing the same thing. We have uh, what's called a republic alliance, setting up these sovereign republics in these different countries. So this is all the outcome of going public 25 years ago. And there's a lot more to be said about that. We never have enough time, of course, but that's why you should listen to our programs. Go to the archive of former programs, bbsradio.com slash here we stand. A lot of the shows over many years now are archived there. And also write to us, Republic National Council at protonmail.com to not only be involved in the events this month, but beyond. And it's all about part of this bigger campaign to reclaim 
our nation, our minds, our lands, ourselves, because our backs are now more and more against the wall. The Chinese takeover is one of the reasons that there's so many more Native people disappearing all over Western Canada now as liquid natural gas is bought up by the Chinese. They have their own death squads operating with the RCMP and the Canadian military to terrorize and kill Native people. That's happening as we speak, just like the English used to do. Now the Chinese are doing it to get the resources on the land, to create a reign of terror so people don't fight back. That's true about Natives or non-Natives. But we have our alternative, and that's why you need to sign up and not merely protest, which doesn't change anything by itself, but commit yourself to changing your life under a new sovereign jurisdiction. Now, there's a difference between acknowledging something in the abstract and acting on it. And what our training workshops do is teach people how to do that. And so that's really on the agenda now for everything we're doing. Um, This coming month, there will be not only actions, but there will be follow-ups. For example, uh, one of the things that have been sparked by your movement is there's a whole movement again of clergy in these genocidal churches, and they're splitting off. They're saying, we're not sending, like in the Catholic Church, uh, it was started years ago by a group of clergy in Ireland, not in our name, they call themselves. They're splitting off from Rome. They're not giving money to the Vatican Bank and its funding of genocide in the arms industry all over the world. And Big Pharma, uh, Vatican Bank has $9.5 billion invested in Pfizer. That's why the Catholic Church is always pushing people to get the shots, because it's helping them, helping their bank. And so, you know, these things are always sparked by people being assertive and taking action. So that's why, you know, we say I, one of the other slogans I like, and I'll get into this in future shows, but uh, my birthday on Friday, uh, one of the things I remember over my 67 years is going to Chiapas, Mexico, uh, and meeting some amazing people there among the refugees, the Mayan refugees from their own genocide in Guatemala during the 80s and 90s. And I remember seeing on a wall uh, some of the Zapatista rebels had taken over a town. Like, again, they just took it over with their own arms, with their own army, with their own jurisdiction. And on the side of the buildings, they painted the slogan, we don't want money, we don't want power, we want a new world, and we're making it. That's the slogan to keep in mind. We don't ask for anything. We create it. That's the basis of our power. And as part of that, we're going to disrupt your old life. We want to stir you to the point where you're not settled anymore, stir you to the point of no return where you're setting off on the journey with us to a new world, a new society that we can make. Now, isn't that worth fighting and dying for? Otherwise, you're just ending up a de facto slave. So here's the alternative, folks. There's no reason to hesitate anymore. Write to us, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com, MurderByDecree.com for the background evidence, Republic, Na- uh, Republic of Canada, um, Dot com. No, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. I'm mixing up websites. <laughs> sorry. Murderbydecree.com, republicofcanada.org, O-R-G, and Republic National Council at protonmail.com. But most importantly, forget about the websites. Face-to-face contact is what's important in the long run. That's what builds a movement, not hearing it from somebody else, but acting on your own experience. Now, we're uh, out of time again. And our final song, which goes to my heart, since I am 67, believe it or not, and uh, hopefully last another 67 years, folks, but if not, it's in your hands, all of you listening. If you suffer tomorrow, it's because you didn't act today. 
If our children die tomorrow, it's because we didn't act today. And our departing song by Phil Oaks from the 60s, a great folk singer and brother, is When I'm Gone. Stay strong. Stay clear. We'll be back next week. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. I thank you. in this world where I'll belong when I'm gone and I won't know the right from the wrong when I'm gone and you won't find me singing on this song when I'm gone so I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here and I won't feel the flowing of the time when I'm gone All the pleasures of love will not be mine when I'm gone My pen won't pour a lyric line when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here And I won't breathe the bracing air when I'm gone And I can't even worry about my cares when I'm gone Won't be asked to do my share when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here And I won't be running from the rain when I'm gone And I can't even suffer from the pain when I'm gone Can't say who's to praise and who's to blame when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here Won't see the golden of the sun when I'm gone And the evenings and the mornings will be one when I'm gone Can't be singing louder than the guns while I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here All my days won't be dances of delight when I'm gone And the sands will be shifting from my sight when I'm gone Can't add my name into the fight while I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here And I won't be laughing at the light When I'm gone And I can't question how or when or why When I'm gone Can't live proud enough to die When I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here There's no place in this world where I'll belong When I'm gone And I won't know the right from the wrong when I'm gone And you won't find me singing on this song when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it 
I guess I'll have to do it Guess I'll have to do it While I'm here